Please be seated. Uh, good evening, brothers and sisters. Uh, welcome once again uh, to St. Mary's. Uh, and uh, can I get you to please turn with me back to page 891, which was our Old Testament reading from Daniel. Page 891, continuing our series through Daniel. And today we're actually going to go through Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, all the way to chapter 11, verse 35. Uh, Daniel 10, verse 1 to 1135. Uh, next week we're taking a break from the Daniel series because it's uh, our cathedral camp. Uh, so we'll just do a psalm. And the week after we'll continue, finish the Daniel series, taking from verse 36 to the end of chapter 12. Right? So that's the plan. Uh, and tonight, uh, Daniel 10, verse 1 to 11, verse 35. The other thing, can I ask you, uh, if you would be so kind to take out the white bulletin uh, that you received as you came in. And in the center of the bulletin, uh, there is the sermon outline, but there's also a map and a cross-reference there. So it would be helpful to have that, because I'm going to ask you to have a look at that a little bit later on. So we've got all those things ready. Then we're ready to go. Let me lead us in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. We thank you that you've been speaking to us as your Word has been read, as it has been sung. Uh, and we pray now that as we consider this passage together, you continue to do that by your Spirit. May your Spirit um, empower me to uh, preach your Word rightly and in his strength. Uh, may he work in each one of our hearts, assuring us of your love and giving us the courage and strength to persevere um, in the light of that. And so we ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. On the 31st of August, our country will celebrate 60 years of independence. And Christians will mark the 200th day since the kidnapping and disappearance of Pastor Raymond Coe. What has happened to Pastor Coe casts a shadow on the joy of our celebrations, doesn't it? For we not only worry about him, we worry about ourselves and our children as we face the future. Where is our country heading? Are extremist forces getting so strong that they can act like that in broad daylight and, and seemingly get away with it, with no one daring to stop them? What is our future as God's people here in Malaysia? Well, in our passage today, Daniel is an exile from his home in the Promised Land. It's just 500 years, just over 500 years before Christ. He's living under a Persian king. And he's given a vision, a clear vision of great conflict in the future. Before this, he has in verse 2 been in mourning for three weeks. And now he is standing, verse 4, on the banks of the great river Tigris. And there he sees this glorious vision. He sees a man clothed with linen with a gold belt around his waist. His face is like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. His limbs gleam like bronze and when he speaks it's like the sound of a multitude. This man is a messenger of God. And he reflects his glory. And even though the people with Daniel don't actually see the man, they, they're very afraid. They run away, leaving Daniel alone. And Daniel's got so scared that he's got no strength left. As, as the man begins to speak in verse 9, he falls down unconscious. And 
The man gets him up and he's still trembling on his hands and knees and, and he reassures Daniel in verse 11 that he is greatly loved. That is why he has been sent. And Daniel's able to stand up still trembling. And the man says to him in verse 12, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God. Your words have been heard. I have come because of your words. But the man explains he wasn't there immediately because, well, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Well, it seems that he's been fighting this... He's been fighting this, uh, uh, this, this prince of the kingdom of Persia, some kind of spiritual being. Uh, and, and he couldn't come because he was fighting that. And then Michael, one of the chief princes, is able to take over. So he can come. There's, there's some kind of spiritual warfare happening here, isn't it? That we don't normally hear about. We don't really understand. But now the man is here in verse 14 to make Daniel understand what's going to happen to his people in latter days. He says that the vision is for days to come. It's not for now, it's for the future. Daniel's still petrified. He's hands hangs his head he becomes mute he, and then someone like a man touches his lips enables him to speak and when he speaks he's complaining verse 16 that he's in pain from the vision he's got no strength left but but one like a man touches him and strengthens him he says to him in verse 19 "O man greatly loved fear not peace be with you be strong and of good courage you see Daniel is reassured of God's love for him. That is what enables him to have peace in his heart and to be strong and brave to receive this message. Before the man tells him the message though, he lets him into a few more secrets from that spirit realm. He's going to go back to his fight against the prince of Persia and the next one's going to be the prince of Greece. And his only ally in this, in verse 21, is Michael, the prince of the people of Israel, who helped him earlier. And this man had helped Michael, 11 verse 1, in the first year of Darius the Mede. Now, the first year of Darius the Mede was the time when the edict had gone out from Darius to say the Israelites can go home. The exile's over. And so we know that even behind that edict, there was a spiritual battle that Michael had fought with the help of this man. Now, sometimes people worry that spiritual battles may mean that God is not really sovereign. But what will happen if the, if the good angels lose the spiritual battle against the bad ones? Well, there's a couple of things to say about that. First of all, the fact there are battles doesn't undermine God's sovereignty. You see, when one country battles another, God is sovereign over the outcome. When one spiritual force battles another, God is still sovereign over the outcome. And so he is able to reveal through, through this man what is inscribed verse, in verse 21 in the, in the book of truth. For what happens ultimately is what is in his book. God is still sovereign. And secondly, since this was written, Christ has come and won a decisive victory in the spiritual realm. In Colossians 2, it says that at the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame 
triumphing over them in Christ. And so the forces of evil have now been defeated. We definitely don't have to worry that they might win. But what are we to do with this information in, in Daniel 10 about spiritual warfare? What do we do about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece and the, and the man who spoke to Daniel and, and Michael? And Well, let me say a couple of things about how not to apply it. Notice that we're actually given very little information in the Bible. And so we know very little. And that hasn't stopped, however, numbers of people from taking the little bit that we know and then adding lots and lots of speculative stuff to that and creating a whole system of angels and demons. And then they try to map them out to nations and then try to get us to target our prayers as, as part of this battle. But, but brothers and sisters, if God has just told us a little bit, well, there's a reason for that, isn't it? He has told us what we need to know. What he hasn't told us, we don't need to know. We certainly shouldn't indulge in vain speculations. We're not told to map out or research the spiritual terrain and then, or even consciously participate in their battles by placing spells on them or binding different ones. Daniel, yes, Daniel's praying here. He's not praying that somehow or other by, by his prayers he can give that man in linen an extra force to, to win over the, prayer, the, the, the prince of Persia. If, if more and more people pray, more, then the guy gets stronger and stronger and he can fight the Persian. No, no. We've heard the kind of prayers that Daniel prays last week, didn't we? What did he pray? He prayed to God. He confessed his sins and the sins of his people. He cried to God for mercy. He called upon God to act in fulfillment of his promises. That's the kind of prayers that Daniel was praying. Now, don't hear me say that our prayers don't have effect. Of course they do. They may even have indirect effect on these battles. Because as we ask God to act in this world, perhaps he may do so through the outcome of these battles. But remember when Daniel prayed, God sent this man in linen. But it doesn't mean we have to be conscious of those battles and know who's fighting who. Doesn't mean we have to know the names of the different angels and demons and engage them. No, no, no. We believe the gospel. We live out its implications. We call upon God to act in this world in prayer. And we trust him faithfully as he does so. And as we do that, we do that knowing that Satan, even though he is a defeated foe, he still fights. He's like some of those Japanese soldiers who kept on fighting even though they lost the war. So we still got a battle to fight. We see that in Ephesians 6 in, uh, from the New Testament. It's there in the handouts, Ephesians 6, 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And how do we fight that spiritual battle? We keep on reading Ephesians 6. It's by applying and proclaiming the gospel. That's what the whole armor of God is about, isn't it? And prayer is part of it. And prayer there is asking God for things. It's asking, asking God for things like clarity for the evangelists who proclaim the gospel, opportunity to preach it, rather than a technique to engage with spiritual forces. In Revelation 12, we see a similar kind of thing. There's war in heaven, the devil is thrown down. Uh, we know he's been <laughs> decisively defeated at the cross. 
he accuses God's people and they conquer him. How? Revelation 12, 14. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. How do we fight that spiritual battle in the heavenly places? We trust in Christ who died for us. We trust his death has paid the penalty for our sin. There's no more debt to pay. Satan, there's no more hold on us. There's no more accusation. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of testimony. That is, we persevere in saying, yes, we belong to Jesus, no matter what, even death. We are to love Jesus more than we love our own lives and be so faithful to Him, even if it means that we are killed. That might be a little bit less glamorous than finding out names of demons in the heavenlies and the fightings up there, but that's the kind of warfare we're to engage in. And that brings us to the next section. That next section from 11 verse 2 to 11.35 is when the man gives Daniel a very detailed prophecy of what's going to happen in the next few years of Israel's history. Next few years, next few hundred years actually. Now before I look at it, let me just show you that map that's in our outline. We're going to go to it a couple of times, but have a look at that map. Can you see right in the middle of the map, you see Tyre and Gaza. Can you see that? Tyre and Gaza. See it on the map? Okay. Israel is roughly in the area between those two. You see on the eastern side is the Arabian Desert. Alright, so no one really can go across from there to attack them. On the western side is the Mediterranean Sea. Not many navies in those days. Uh, so pretty safe from that side as well. They are vulnerable from north and from south. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, let's have a look and see what this man in linen says about the future. Okay, we're back in chapter 11. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 2, he speaks about a number of future Persian kings. And then in verse 3, the focus goes to, to a mighty Greek king, which we later find out is Alexander the Great. And in fulfillment of verse 4, Alexander's kingdom will be divided among his four generals when he dies. Verse 5 speaks of one of those generals who's going to rule Egypt. Later on, we will discover his name is Ptolemy, and his empire will be called the Ptolemaic Empire. And his successors are called in this prophecy, the King of the South. So if you go back to that map, you'll see the dark gray that covers Egypt and that area there. You see that on the map? All right. That's the kingdom of the South. Then the prophecy speaks in some detail about a rise of a king in the north. Turns out to be a guy who will be called Seleucus. Seleucus and his successors are known, therefore, as the king of the north. And if you look at the map, you see the Seleucid Empire, the, the light grey on the map. You see that? The dark grey and the light grey? Now, you have a look at this. What's in between the king of the north and the king of the south? What's in between? Israel. The promised land, exactly. Come back to that in a tick. Now, let's go at those detailed prophecies in verse 5 to 19. Now, we're not going to look at those detailed prophecies. Let me just tell you that they're there. There's various wars between the king of the north and the king of the south over the next few hundred years. Uh, we don't have time to look at it in detail. If you want to look at it in detail, Jessica will be very happy to sell you a study Bible. All right, you go to the book corner later and ask for a study Bible. Jessica will be delighted and all the details you'll find in there. But the important thing for us to note is this. If the king of the north fights the king of the south, guess who's in the middle? It's the Jews in the promised land, isn't it? Right? The Malays say, 
gajah sama gajah berjuang pelanduk mati di tengah okay two elephants will fight and the mouse deer dies in between and that's what happens and so there's detailed prophecies about hundreds of years of war and this ends in verse 21 all the way down in verse 21 with the rise of someone called a contemptible person now we're looking at about three and a half centuries uh, in the future to Daniel's time uh, this contemptible person he's not named in the prophecy but we know him from history as Antiochus Epiphanes and he becomes a great enemy of God's people he's he's the king of the north he takes the throne verse 21 even though royal majesty has not been given to him uh, turns out what happens is that the real heir to the throne is in prison in Rome when his father dies and Tychus buys off key people takes the kingdom in verse 25 and 26 he attacks the king of the south with a great army the king of the south also has a big army but he falls because of internal plots his army is destroyed the two kings make a deal but both are liars and cheats and it doesn't stick Antiochus has been down south destroying the king of the south and his area in Egypt he goes back to his own land in verse 28 with great wealth having done big plundering down south but his heart verse 28 is set against the holy covenant the reason for that is because when he travels back from the south from Egypt when he's destroyed he's beaten the king of the south he goes back through Palestine and as he's going back through Palestine, he finds there's an insurrection happening there in his territory. And verse 28 says he works his will and heads back to the land. And history shows us that will would include the killing of 80,000 Jews and the plundering of the temple. At the time appointed in verse 29, Antiochus Epiphanes decides to have another southern adventure. But this time it goes differently. For ships of Kittim, in verse 30, referring to the Romans, comes against him and takes the side of the king of the south. So now he comes to Egypt, he's ready to fight, he realizes he can't win, he's afraid, he turns around, he heads back. And he heads back, he goes back through the promised land. He is angry about his humiliation in Egypt. And like a spoiled bully, he takes it out on the people of God in that promised land. This is now 167 BC. His forces, verse 31, profane the temple and fortress. They take away the regular burnt offering. They set up what is called here the abomination that makes desolate. And, and when this is fulfilled, we discover that this is an idol of Zeus that they place in the temple. And they probably sacrifice a pig to it there as well. And when all this happens, there are two kinds of Jews in the land. There are the collaborators who actually work with Antiochus and there are those who stand against him. Those who are seduced by Antiochus are described in verse 32 as those seduced with flattery who violate the covenant. But those who stand against him in verse 32 are the people who know their God. They stand firm. They take action. They will not submit to him. But even among them, Things are tough. The wise, in verse 33, shall make many understand. They help the Jews, many Jews join the cause and they help them understand it. And, and, but it comes at a cost. Because for some days, verse 33 continues, they, sh they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. So many of these wise are killed. But they also receive help, in verse 34, a little help, which historically is probably 
referring to Judas Maccabeus, the resistance leader and his family who lead the Jews in revolt, regain control of the temple in 164 BC. But even then, they sometimes attract the wrong kind of followers. People join with flattery in verse 35. Some of the wise are also killed in verse 35, but somehow or other, their death will be positive, preparing them for the time of the end so that they may be refined and purified for that time. For the end, it says, awaits the appointed time. The real end is at a different time. We will discover next week that it's a time after the coming of Christ, and in fact, a time in our own future. Not next week, two weeks' time. So make sure you come back for that. For now, we will stop at that part of the passage and think about the application of what we've seen so far. We know the immediate application was for the Jews who lived 160 years before Christ. And the passage here is warning them prophetically about Antiochus and calling them to stand firm when he comes. But there are still things from here that we can learn now. We see that God really does reveal mysteries. He can tell the future because the future is in his hands. And if he so accurately told Daniel the future about Antiochus Epiphanes, we can be sure that what he says about our future will be accurate as well. We see also that God's people have real enemies. Back in 167 BC, it was Antiochus Epiphanes. But there have been many cruel tyrants who have come and gone since then, who have been terrible to God's people. In our own day, we see ISIS in the Middle East who target Christians as well as others and slaughter them brutally. We have secularists in the West who, whose passion it is to get, uh, get rid of every vestige of Christianity from public life and, and legally attack anyone who, who acts on a Christian worldview. And even closer to home, we have people who will stop at nothing to promote their own religious agendas. God's people have real enemies. But... We can take comfort from the fact that God is sovereign and He loves us. Antiochus Epiphanes could do his worst for the people of God. But actually, he was fulfilling God's purposes. God is sovereign. Doesn't mean that we won't suffer under wicked rulers. But when we are persecuted and killed, God is still on the throne. He is using this for His purpose. Because remember, He loves us. He loves his people as he did Daniel. And he has shown his love for us even more clearly than he showed his love for Daniel. God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we know that Christ died for us, we know that he really does love us. And so in the midst of our trials, we can take comfort and draw strength from God's love, just like Daniel did. And any suffering he causes to go through, we can know that it's because he loves us, not in spite of it. And at the right time, we will bring it to an end. Finally, we see how we should and should not respond from some of the examples here. Remember, among God's people, there would be those who turn their backs on him when powerful people like Antiochus uh, influence them. They are like the Jews in verse 32 who are seduced by the flattery of Antiochus to violate the covenant. And sometimes, friends, we do see powerful people going against God and against the Bible. And they want us to come on their side. They say, come be on the right side of history. 
It's like if you're a, you're a teacher in a school and the principal and all the other teachers follow one way of thinking and you're the only one who follows Christ. You've been in a situation like that or, or, or analogous to that? And you're told by the head what a great teacher you are, what great job prospects you have for the future. If only you were told the line on this matter. Don't be seduced by flattery. Don't let the attention of powerful people make you deny Christ. Some of God's people will be seduced by flattery. But verse 32, remember how it continues. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And friends, we know our God even better than the Jews of Antiochus' day. Because 160 years after that, God himself came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And we truly know God through him. We know God is the God of justice who, who must punish sin and will, and will vindicate his people. We know God is the God of mercy who loves us, who gave his son to die for us, paid the penalty for us on our behalf. We are people who know our God. And so we must be those who stand firm and take action. And what is the action we should take? Well, like the wise of verse 33, we should make people understand. We should explain who God really is, what He has done for us in Jesus Christ, what it means to follow Him. We should help our friends understand, our neighbors understand. We should help many people understand as possible. If your friend asks you about Jesus, please be prepared to tell him or her whatever the cost. Be ready to explain the gospel. But be warned. Like the Jews of verse 33, we shall see some of the wise, that is those who are helping people understand, stumble. Some people like Pastor Raymond may be kidnapped and disappear. Some people may lose their jobs. Some people may lose their scholarships. Some people may lose their lives. When these things happen, remember it is still part of God's loving plan for us. It is, verse 35, that we may be refined and purified for the time of the end. You see, even the worst of persecution is for our ultimate good to prepare us for glory. So brothers and sisters, we still do not know where Pastor Raymond is. And we still do not know the future for our country. But whoever we are, wherever we are, like the Jews under Antiochus, we must be prepared to suffer now. Like Jesus, we must be prepared to die. Don't be seduced by the flattery of the world like those Jews who collaborated. Don't be bullied into denying Christ even if your life is demanded of you. Fight for God and His people. Not with swords and spears and guns and bullets, but by believing, proclaiming, and living out the implications of the gospel and praying for its growth. Know that God loves you and so be strengthened with courage. Be faithful unto death and you will be given the crown of life. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you that you love us. And we thank you that you have shown that love for us ever so clearly. 
in that Christ died for us. Help us to always hold fast, to know that love, and to be strengthened and encouraged to press on in serving you. Father, we pray that you help us to be people who don't collaborate with the world, who are not seduced by the flattery of the world, but who hold fast in to the gospel of Christ. Hold fast in faithfulness to you. May we be like the wise who help others understand who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. And may we be ready to, 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 to pay whatever cost to be faithful unto you. Please, would you help us? Please, would you strengthen us? For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.